Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to iTunes, look under Not the Public Podcast, and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms. The catchphrase in today's relationship between politicians and media is fake news. Donald Trump has summed up the zeitgeist of apprehension and suspicion that exists between the governors and the press. But is today's conflict between media and politicians any different than it was in the past? A new book tries to shed a little light on the dynamic here in Canada from the earliest days of the nation until today. Power, prime ministers, and the press charts the sometimes fractious, sometimes symbiotic history of the prime ministers and the parliamentary press corps. The author is my old friend and colleague Bob Lewis, and he should know. Bob served on the Hill from the time he left his native eastern townships to cover all the prime ministers, from Lester Pearson to Stephen Harper. Later, he was editor-in-chief of Maclean's in the time of the Quebec referendum and NAFTA. This book is a window into the evolution of the press corps from shameless partisans to antagonists of the powerful. There's plenty of lore and legend from a guy who was there when history was written, and it's my pleasure to welcome him to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Hi, Bob. Good to be with you, Bruce. It is great to have you on. There's so many stories in the book. And I, first of all, I have to tell you how much I'm enjoying reading all this sort of stuff. Uh, it, it, it's fantastic, the lore and legend. You've clearly done the research. But can you characterize what makes Canada's coverage of its government so unique? Is there something that defines how we, we follow our governments? Well, it's kind of uh, next to hockey, a national sport. And uh, we love making the tallies at the end of the week and who's up and who's down. Um, it's a it's also a very passionate bunch. I mean, it's not a huge number of people who follow politics, but it's a very passionate, engaged audience. And I think a very informed audience as well. Do you think we're more negative or we're more partisan or more reserved? I mean, is there something that characterizes we're watching, obviously, the circus in the United States at the moment. Is there something that characterizes our po- political coverage? Well, I think we like to think we're more moderate in our approach, more balanced. I'm not so sure that we aren't affected, though, by the uh, growing amount of populism, uh, which I think is being fueled by the sort of uh, there's a there's a real divide in the country now between haves and have nots. And, and you, you see it here in Toronto, especially where the costs of living are out of sight. Uh, people are, are having to engage in these enormous commutes back and forth an hour, an hour and a half at a time. Uh, affordable housing is is disappearing in the city. And there's this real anger among people about what's happening. And a a lot of it is directed at the so-called elites, Mm. uh, the downtown people. Yeah. Well, you can come to Calgary. You can still afford a house here. I can promise you that. Now, now, Ottawa has never exactly been a garden spot, the city of Ottawa. And probably at the time of Confederation, it was probably a rough and ready place. Describe how and where journalists covered the hill in the early days of the country. Well, uh, actually, they started uh, a year before Confederation working out of the Parliament building. There was a, a so-called press gallery up there uh, on the hill, and they all worked in one little defined room. When I went there in the 60s, uh, it had gotten so crowded that we were actually working in an alcove outside of the main room, and, and the place was just one trash can short of a slum uh, <laughs> with dust and balls and beer bottles and paper all over the place. The fire marshal condemned the place and said we had to get out of there. 
And so a lot of us were dispersed around Ottawa. And so now there really isn't a core of a press gallery uh, in a physical sense. They're spread all over the city. But you mentioned, Bruce, the, the old days. I mean, the whole issue of questioning the press and the accuracy, I find, is, is sort of amusing because in the old days, I mean, uh, prime ministers like Laurier and McDonald actually owned newspapers and the people who worked for those papers supported the party line. In fact, in the House of Commons in the press gallery where I worked, if you were a liberal, you sat on the same side as the Liberal Party did in the House of Commons. And, and if they got defeated, they switched to the left side and you moved as well. Uh, it was like a musical chairs game. Yeah. And, and there, were, there were all kinds of times when, when powerful newspaper editors basically covered up for their, for their favorite party. One of the things that always amazes me in, in talking about that time is just how news actually got out and how it traveled. Uh, you know, in this day and age, people are, oh, you know, you just file it on your phone, you can file it on your laptop, whatever. Uh, the, the way that stories got out and how they were disseminated, how long did it take for a story to get out? If you had that hot story that you wanted to break, how long did it take it for, for it to get from coast to coast? Well, sometimes it, it, in the earliest days, of course, it didn't go from coast to coast because there, was, there wasn't a coast. Yeah. But uh, um, the, uh, the, the thing that, I, that struck me when I was doing my research was that uh, the press gallery in those days used to work by telegraph. And there was no Hansard in those days. So reporters would actually take down the debates verbatim, uh, longhand. And then they would transcribe these debates and the newspapers would run these debates, great gobs of it, two and three thousand words at a time. And uh, that's the way people got their news. There was, there was no radio and, and uh, there was no, no other means of communication. So the newspapers were it. There was no 24 news uh, cycle, obviously. I mean, it would take days for people to react to stuff. Uh, prime ministers would go abroad for two and three months at a time to go to Commonwealth meetings. They'd sail on a ship and they'd be gone for a month. The country would carry on, which is probably a good lesson for all of us. <laughs> uh, one of the things that's in there as well that interested me was in that era, in the era, let's say, before World War II, the, the, the regional newspapers had a really much higher pedigree. T today we look at it, you know, it's the Globe and Mail, it's, it's the National Post, it's CBC, it's national, people seem to control it, control it. But the influence of papers in Winnipeg and Victoria and in Halifax was, was really paramount at that time as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, you know, the, the journalists of the day were very instrumental in the creation of the country. Uh, they were players. Uh, when the Charlottetown Conference took place before Confederation, 23 of the delegates from the province of Canada were actually journalists. People like Edward Blake and, uh, and George Brown uh, were central to the creation of the country. And uh, that's an important part of, of the history that, that's in the book, uh, how the journalists actually were the key players. And sometimes uh, they pulled their punches. I mean, uh, Arthur Ford tells a delightful story that when he was uh, freelancing for the Frederick and Gleaner, he was covering the naval bill, which is a big debate about whether Canada should have its own navy or whether it should support Britain. And Laurier's speech, which was coming up in the House of Commons, was much anticipated because there was a real split in Laurier's caucus. Uh, a lot of the Quebec members were totally against anything to do with the imperialist Britain. So Laurier was going to follow a guy by the name of Hazen, who was a friend of the owner of the paper. And when when Ford asked his desk, how much do you want uh, of, ha of, of Hazen? Uh, the, the, the reply came back, ignore 
Laurier, give us Hazen verbatim. This was from the owner's friend. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as I say, that but regional papers had a lot of influence too. It wasn't dominated by national chains. That's right. And, and in fact, one of the strongest regional papers in, in McDonald's time was the Montreal Star, which uh, is no longer around. And it was the base for which McDonald, uh, on which McDonald built his Quebec support. And, and his big block of Quebec supporters was largely driven by the support of the Montreal Star. Laurier as well depended on a paper that we now know as Le Soleil in Quebec City. He funded the paper and installed his own guy as the editor. So these were very strong forces in not only the creation of the country, but in the perpetuation of either the liberal or conservative parties. You spent a lot of time in the book, and, and it's it's rich time. It's a lot of fun to read, talking about some of these titans of journalism from the past. Victor Sifton, Grant Dexter, John Defoe, George Ferguson. Is there one guy that sort of characterizes that era for you? That if somebody said, well, what would be a great example of somebody from that era? If you had to choose one guy, who would it be? Well, I guess one of the greats was uh, was Bruce Hutchison. Uh, he was uh, a man of the West. He had the good sense not to spend all his time in Ottawa. Uh, he ranged all over the country uh, and into the into the states. He had great friends in the uh, the U.S. establishment and the Kennedy administration, um, and he was very plugged into the cabinet. And he would come into town and scoop up a whole lot of stories and write them. Um, and in fact, he was. Uh, along with Dexter, were very, very instrumental in Pearson's election. Both of them uh, felt that they had to make Mike shine in, in, in Dexter's expression. And, and really, they did. Uh, Pearson got into a lot of trouble for calling on the Diefenbaker government to simply turn over power without actually having to face the electorate. And Dief just excoriated him. And uh, so he was gonna, Pearson was going to go on television, and he needed some help. And so he called Bruce Hutchison back from Washington. He said, look, I've got to go on TV. I want you to ask me the lob ball questions. And so they all set off in the car, Hutchison, Pearson driving, uh, making up their questions as they went along, so that when they got to the studio, uh, Pearson would be supplied with some questions, and to which he knew the answers, by the way, thanks to Bruce Hutchison. Yes. So there was this kind of symbiotic relationship between uh, – the great journalist who broke scoops, no doubt, and, and did a lot of very fine reporting. But on the other hand, they were party pre. They were part of the whole establishment. Yeah. This, this was a men's club and probably a pretty boozy men's club at the time. But you do take a lot of time in the book to talk about women and how women finally started to make inroads into the press corps. It was a tough, it was a tough assignment at the beginning, wasn't it? Well, it was. I mean, it, it's hard to believe that women were not accepted as members until 1924, Although from the turn of the century, there had been plenty of prominent women uh, in the ranks of journalism because the newspapers had decided that they really needed uh, more, uh, more copy that was more appealing to women who were making decisions about uh, what to buy in the supermarkets and what to what, the clothes and whatnot. And so uh, women took their place in the, out, and marched out of the Victorian area into journalism. But the press gallery, uh, which had a great past record of defying modernity of almost any kind, uh, kept them out until 1924, and they basically had to break down the barriers. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's, an, it's interesting to see it in perspective today. Uh, you're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest today is award-winning writer and editor Bob Lewis. His new book is Power, Prime Ministers and the Press. All right, what sort of world did Bob Lewis discover when he came to the Hill? Well, I was 22, wide-eyed, 
walked up the steps to the press gallery, unescorted, uh, no security really in those days. I walked into this corridor and I thought, my God, this is a total slum, this place. Uh, <laughs> there was paper all over the place. and uh, But on the other hand, there was a great informality. Uh, MPs and cabinet ministers would drop by your desk. I happened to work for two of the really fine senior guys in the press gallery. Bill Wilson was actually one of the deans of the place. And so uh, John Turner was a young, dashing MP from Montreal, clearly on the rise, would drop by our little desk in the press gallery and chat with Bill. And the, the head of the Privy Council, the chief cabinet secretary, would wander around discussing policy. So it was a very intimate place. You could stroll down and, and see ministers uh, informally in the corridors. Uh, you could go into the lobbies of the house and, and have interviews. I used to uh, go down in the afternoon sometime, and Diefenbaker, who was then a defeated former leader, would hold court in the members' lounge off, just off the floor of the House of Commons with great stories. So it was a completely open-access, uh, informal place, and you really got to know a lot about things that made the country work. It was a time for me, a, a innocent from the eastern townships of Quebec, uh, who could learn about freight rates, uh, in the West, about cod fishing in the East. And it seemed like the whole country came together and it was a learning experience for everybody. Uh, in contrast to today, it's a very kind of controlled atmosphere, fenced off pens for reporters. You can't go here, you can't go there. Uh, a lot of it for, for reasons of security, but also a lot of it because the, port, the politicians prefer to keep us all at a great distance. Yeah. You talked about John Diefenbaker. Were, were any of the, the characters you met in those early days did they intimidate you? Were you intimidated by any of them? Well, I I wasn't really intimidated. I, I was a bit in awe the first few months, obviously. You know, you're standing next to the prime minister of the country. I mean, I, the first time I was ever on an airplane, it's hard to believe, uh, was in 1966. And I went up to Algoma riding in the prime minister's government jet. Well, that was a pretty big deal. Um, so there was that, that sense of... Uh, of awe, I guess, in a way. But I guess the, the, the most profound sense was just that you were covering history on the run. I mean, these were all events that mattered. And, and in addition to scandals and corruption charges, while I was there in the minority period in the 60s, uh, Medicare got passed, the Canada Assistance Plan, immigration reform, it was a new, a new Canadian flag. I mean, it was, it was amazing to me that anything did get passed. It was such a zoo. Uh, with with Pearson and Diefenbaker. I mean, that fight went on for four elections and it was a complete stalemate. I mean, Pearson never did get his majority. Uh, Dief lost his leadership. Uh, I mean, it was a gong show, but on the other hand, the gong show produced some interesting legislation. So I've been a little less critical of minority governments as a result of that. Now, you talk in the book a little bit about how the Gerda Munsinger uh, affair uh, came in, in in the midst of all of that. And when all these things were going on that have significance to today, I mean, nobody remembers Gerda Munsinger. But at the time, it seemed like it was going to tear apart the country. Well, it was. I mean, she uh, she was uh, alleged to have been an East German spy uh, and uh, and an escort, to put it politely. And she had uh, allegedly had relationships with two of Deacon Baker's ministers, Pierre Sevigny and George Hees. Uh, and the liberals were using this to retaliate against the conservatives who were filing their own counter charges about the liberals. And we were all told she was dead. Uh, and that was the end of it. Well, all of a sudden, uh, she became very much alive and well and living in Munich. Uh, Bob Regulia of the Toronto Star famously looked her name up in the phone book and called her and, and went around and interviewed her. 
And I still remember the headline, Starman Finds Gerda Munsinger. <laughs> well, I mean, this was like complete theater. Uh, I mean, a gift that kept on giving for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was a royal commission. Um, and, and it was even the theme of the gallery dinner that year. The, the press gallery paid somebody to do a, a lovely painting of Gerda, kind of sprawled on a sofa longingly. And uh, one of the guys I talked to, he, his guest at that dinner was George Hees. And Hees never was one to miss a good line. He looked up at the painting as he went underneath it and said, hmm, got the eyes wrong. <laughs> that would be George Hees, that's for sure. Um, you were in covering when the FLQ crisis was on, the Trudeau years. Uh, you were there for NAFTA. You were there for the referenda. Uh, one, one story that sticks out for you, it doesn't have to be a big story, but one story that sticks out for you that, that uh, you know, is one that you savor now as you, as you look back. Well, I don't know if I savor this, but it's one that 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 sort of there's always there's always stories that kind of rattle you to the core because you, you just never forget them. Yeah. And I was standing uh, below the balcony in, in uh, Montreal City Hall uh, when Charles de Gaulle made his famous Viva le Québec libre. And the crowd went wild. I mean, with pure emotion and, and support. And I thought, oh, my God, this is this is terrible. And I looked over to my right and a friend of mine, a francophone from the press gallery, there were tears of joy streaming down his face and he was cheering. And I thought, wow, you know, that that was that said it all to me, because here I was kind of appalled by what had happened and what was going to happen to the country. And here was the spirit of Quebec nationalism flourishing uh, uh, with a friend of mine. And I had the same feeling when I went back to my hometown in Waterloo to cover the referendum. And there was a real emotional split in that town. There were actually people who weren't speaking to each other uh, because they were either supporting the PQ or the liberals. Yeah. You're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest today is award-winning writer and editor Bob Lewis. His new book is Power, Prime Ministers, and the Press from Dundurn Press. Okay, um, fake news. It's getting all the eyeballs. But there, but there is a genuine concern in the media about bias and stories that have to be withdrawn or corrected. We've seen reporters have to be suspended or fired because, frankly, the due diligence wasn't done at, at, at the source. What, what's your sense of the health of reporting in this day? Well, I know that there are lots of instances where there are shortcomings. In fact, uh, I'm the worst uh, critic, I suppose, uh, yelling and screaming at my TV set in the evenings. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I think uh, reporting is is more credible today than it used to be, certainly in the early days. I mean, there were definitely uh, distortions. Uh, there were there were things kept out of the newspapers in those days. I mean, there was a big the big split in the in the uh, Mackenzie King cabinet right in the midst of the war. And the Winnipeg Free Press, uh, through John Defoe, the great editor, uh, sat on the story about a threat by ministers to resign. I mean, the kind of thing that would never happen today. Yeah. So I think on balance, uh, the reporting today is more credible than ever. However, it's very challenged. There have been massive cutbacks. Uh, lots of people have, have cut their Ottawa bureaus, so the political news is down. And I draw a direct link between political engagement and people who read and, and, and are interested in news, news and information. Uh, the studies all show that the, the more information people pursue, the more they, get, they are engaged in civil society. And I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, participation in voting is way down these days. Yeah. So it's a kind of yes and no, Bruce. I mean, there's, there's big flaws in the business, 
but I think on balance, uh, the good people are doing a good job today. Uh, my concern, one of my concerns is, and I remember back in the in the days of covering the Eagleson scandal and, and having to lawyer stories, spending 24 hours, 36 hours in a room with a lawyer going through the details word by word before we could put anything out. And today I see such basic mistakes getting out. And I wonder if, if these stories are even been vetted by anybody. And I guess I guess one of the things that I worry about is the loss of institutional knowledge at a lot of the places that you and I worked at and worked against, uh, but we had respect for, that that institutional knowledge seems to have gone. And, and, and you know, there's something really essential missing there. Well, I think you're right. And I, again, I think it's related to cost because it was very expensive to lawyer, as we said, quote unquote, lawyer stories. And we yeah. spent a lot of money at McLean's. Uh, before we published stories to get them vetted by a lawyer. We were fortunate in that we had terrific uh, lawyers who tried to get the stories in the magazine, not keep them out. And and that was very important. But I don't think there's the kind of funds, uh, except in the largest organizations, to do that kind of work anymore. And as a result, I think there's less risk-taking because people are gun-shy and there's a lot of self-censorship. And there's a lot of stories that just don't get explored anymore because of lack of person power, or lack of budget. Yeah, you, you have you have a story in the book about, of course, uh, when you were editing McLean's. Alan Fotheringham was your back page guy, and I think you said something in the neighborhood around twenty six libel suits against him, of which only two were lost. There's a story about a piano in there. Can you tell us? Well, he claims that he only lost two, um, and I know which two they were because <laughs> they were on our watch, <laughs> and, and we and we spent some money settling those because we we determined that. The cost. This is another thing about about fighting uh, libel. Uh, it's sometimes cheaper to to basically settle than it is to, to go all the way to court. So I know too, uh, but there's a story that Jim Cooch used to say, love to talk about, was he would invite people to his trendy downtown Toronto home uh, to play or look at the Fotheringham piano. And the rumor is that this might have been uh, part of a settlement that he had done with Dr. Foth. But I, I couldn't get anywhere with either of them. Uh, Jim had unfortunately passed away by the time I was doing my research. And uh, Father M was being uncharacteristically mum. Really? I can't believe Foth not having something to say. <laughs> Hard to believe, Bruce. Hard to believe. Finally, I know you're concerned with the future of journalism, just in this discussion we're talking about it, uh, especially in job losses, concentration of media. What do you say to young people about the future of the business? Why should they still get into this business? Good question. Um, in my dark moments, I say don't. Uh, but on the other hand, I see a lot of really talented young people now coming up through the ranks. Uh, there's not that many places for them to go anymore. That's one of the problems. But I think there are jobs around, and I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the digital world. Uh, where I think some journalism is going to happen. Uh, the big question is whether anybody's going to be able to pay for it because the digital revenue is not keeping pace with the losses on the conventional side. So it is a very, very bleak prospect. And the journalism schools, I think, have got a lot of reckoning to do. Uh, they're churning out lots of graduates. And are they, finding, are they all finding work? I think a lot of them are going into public relations. Um, so my advice is if you if you believe in what you want to do, keep working at it. I know it's, it's, it's kind of banal advice, but uh, I think if you have a dream uh, and you pursue it, something good will come, come of it. 
Yeah, a, a friend of mine says that uh, the, the Internet will set you free. But by that, he means that you can work the Internet all you want, but it'll be for free. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. But, it, it, you know, it, to a certain extent, what we're doing here, just this, this particular chat here on the book, it is about the new opportunities that are there. And uh, I, I think it's never been a better time to be able to get a message out and to, to, to make an impact. Uh, and there's nobody standing in your way. But as you say, uh, it's not an easy way to make a living. And you almost have to sacrifice everything just to, to, to believe in the sort of things that we're talking about here that you believed in in your career. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the the odds uh, in our day were a lot more favorable, uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, Richard Gwynn in an interview said, you know, we were lucky. He said, you know, uh, we were pre-baby boom, so we didn't have that challenge. Uh, there were very few immigrants in the business. There were very few women in the business. Uh, you know, all white guys, you know, were, were very fortunate back, yeah. <laughs> back in the 60s. Uh, so it's a lot more challenging, a lot more competition today. Um, there's not enough diversity in the ranks, for sure, uh, but it's getting better. And, and your point about uh, digital is a good one, Bruce, because uh, I've been fortunate. I have uh, a son uh, who works in the, in the television industry, and he's done some lovely work on my behalf uh, in terms of doing sort of uh, little promo pieces. And I've been getting a great response on Facebook and Twitter and getting my message out. Um, and, and frankly, the publishers these days expect you to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh, in terms of, of generating publicity. Um, and I see you're doing a pretty good job on your own book. Yeah, well, you're not a self-respecting journalist unless you've got a podcast and a book going at the same time in this day and age. You won't get any money out of them particularly, but, you know, for, for those of us who can afford it, uh, it it's, it's a habit that will never die. And, and I'm proud to say that I'll probably be doing this until they have to haul me away in the pine box. Well, may that be many, many years away. Bob, always a thrill to talk to you and, and lots of fun. And uh, the book, I highly recommend it just you know, if you want some stories and if you want to find out how Ottawa worked and still works. It's, uh, and some nice stuff about our mutual friend Peter Mansbridge in there, too. If you want to read that, it's all in Bob's new book, Power, Prime Ministers, and the Press from Dundurn Press. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count and all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns, my podcasts, and my poetry on the website. I'm also now appearing twice a week on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 167, Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time on Mondays and Fridays. I'll post those conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page. Till the next time, this is Bruce Dobigan, and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count. Thank you.